A reading from the Song of Solomon, sometimes also known as the Song of Songs. The voice of my beloved, look, he comes, leaping upon the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing in at the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and he says to me, Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. For now the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? And now in this time, dear God, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts together, bring glory and honor to you, O God, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So when Bob Wallace heard that I was preaching on Song of Songs this morning, he asked me to poll the audience to find out who can remember ever hearing a sermon from Song of Songs before. So by a show of hands, how many do we have? Well, I hope that I'm not repeating too much for both of you. Um, I can hear the comments now, right? Well, this new pastor has to be crazy. Uh, who in the world would preach on Song of Songs in the first month of a new pastorate? I mean, that's just nuts. And maybe it is, but... There is one rather obvious fact that I have never been able to shake. Song of Songs is in the Bible. <laughs> it is. It's not in the appendix. It's not off to the side. It's not you might actually want to go and read sometime. It's an actual Bible book, like all of the other books that are actual Bible books, with all of the rights, responsibilities, uh, and privileges thereunto. And, and to complicate matters a little bit, it is also in the lectionary. Now, it's only in the lectionary twice, and this is the only passage that they felt comfortable putting in the lectionary, so they doubled it twice. And so I, when I saw it coming up this Sunday, I thought, well, here's something you don't see every week. And it would be two more years before I would get a chance to do it again and have the excuse that it's in the lectionary. So I know they wouldn't want, I knew you wouldn't want to miss this, so I decided to go ahead and preach from Songs. Songs is actually a beautiful book. In fact, it's the greatest song in the history of anything, at least according to itself. Um, that's what the title literally says. The title, The Song of Songs in Hebrew, is the way of saying it's the best song. Just like the Holy of Holies is the way of saying the most holy place. So it would be perfectly appropriate to translate the title of the Song of Songs as Greatest Song Ever. But this book is infamous. Um, I have seen it used for jokes in television shows. Uh, I have joked that it's the best book to read during a boring sermon. Um, I have also said if you're going to preach on songs, make sure that you have the text printed out on a separate page so no one goes wandering around. It, its notoriety comes from its graphic celebration of human intimacy. 
It does not take very long surveying the book until you ask the question, how in the world did this book end up in the Bible? Well, for close to 2,000 years, the book was actually read as an allegory. In other words, when people would read these graphic celebrations of human intimacy and sexuality in this book, they would say, well, the book isn't talking about a man and a woman. The book is talking about God and God's love for God's people. And the church picked up this reading, and they connected it to Jesus, which, of course, the church is the bride of Christ, and said this is actually Christ's love for the church. Well, in fairness, there is actually no explicit mention of God in the book of Songs. There might be one passing allusion in chapter 8, but even that one to me is a little bit sketchy. So whenever I would teach this book, whenever I would talk about this book, my teaching usually reflected the more recent interpretations of this book, those of, say, the past 50 or 60 years. And in recent times, it's been much more common to see these songs simply as a celebration of human love. In other words, this book was a collection of possibly secular love songs, maybe secular wedding songs, maybe from Israel, maybe from Syria, maybe from somewhere else in the Near East, that the biblical editors adapted and edited and put into the text. So that was always my first stop on the journey with this text. And certainly there is a lot to find here in these recent readings. Intimacy and human sexuality is not something that was hidden in ancient Israel. There was nothing Victorian about the way that Israel regarded human relationships. In the proper context, it's a beautiful expression of intimacy and community. In fact, one of my very favorite feminist biblical scholars, a woman named Phyllis Tribble, reads the book of Songs as a depiction of the ideal restored human relationship. In Song 7, verse 10, we see the woman say, I am my beloved, and his desire is for me. That is quite literally a wonderful reversal of Genesis 3's verse, you will desire your husband, but he will rule over you. In other words, this picture of this restored relationship where love is beautifully reciprocated. No longer is your desire for one and it skewed in one way. Now it is something that uh, your husband's desire is for you in the way that your desire is for your husband. So this beautifully restored, reciprocated desire to me has always been a beautiful reading of this text because truly sin does create losses across the spectrum of human experience. Genesis 3 is not just talking about separation from God, it is, but it's talking about separation from God, adversarial relationships with creation, uh, childbearing and pain and hopelessness. And another painful loss was this loss of perfect community that we saw in Genesis 1 and 2. Ideal human community seen in those last verses of Genesis 2. They were naked, the man and their wife, and not ashamed. Imagine that complete vulnerability with another human being and absolutely no concerns, absolutely no shame. Those deep corners of your mind those deep corners of your personality expressed with another human being and able to be expressed without shame. That picture of closeness. For many interpreters, when the text talks about the creation of man and woman, it was because it wasn't good for humankind to be alone. In other words, human beings were created for community. And in one brief, beautiful, shining moment at the end of chapter 2, humanity had it and then lost it in Genesis chapter 3. 
Of course, we didn't just have community with one another in Genesis 3. We lost community with God as well. Humanity felt shame when they faced each other, but they also felt shame and tried to hide from the divine. You see, we were created for community with God as well. The creation narrative of Genesis 1 is a story about heaven meeting earth. We'll talk about this when we have our Wednesday night series this fall, but Genesis 1 is the story of a temple being built, a place where God can dwell with God's people. This created order functioned as a place where God could fellowship with creation and creation could fellowship with God and each other. And then we lost it. We withdraw into ourselves. We hide. We believe we can do it all by ourselves. We make clothes out of fig leaves instead of letting the fig tree produce figs like our reading celebrates today. So as I return to songs today, I'll ask the question of the text that one of my students asked as I taught about the beauty of community between human beings. The student looked at me and said, is there nothing of God here? Is there any way to find meaning in that allegorical reading that the church had? And I understood the trouble. On the one hand, I I do think that this text has a lot to offer in reminding us what perfect, beautiful community looks like between human beings. On the other hand, I would like to be able to read this text with my brothers and sisters in the faith who have read it differently for 2,000 years. So when my student asked that question, I remember saying how interesting it was that we are so quick to accept the negative allegorical pictures in Ezekiel and Hosea. It's so easy to understand Israel as the faithless wife, like Gomer. That makes perfect sense to us. Why is it so hard for us to read the positive picture here in Song of Songs? I worry that that indicates latent misogynism in some of our interpretations. I worry about latent insecurities that we just can't imagine a God that has that kind of selfless love. The God of all creation, selfless love for that creation. Well, since that moment in that class, I have changed the way I think about the book of Songs. I don't ignore this book as a celebration of human intimacy. I do think it's a celebration of human intimacy. And it's reminding us that we're created for each other and reminding us that we're created for community. But I don't stop at that celebration of human intimacy. I do think it's that, but I also think it's something else. It's it's both and. It's a reminder that we as human beings are created for community in all of our relationships. We are created for community with one another. We are created for community with creation. We are created for community with God. We were not created to go alone. And we will fail when we try. Our story as Christians is to say that Jesus is the one who fixed that problem. Jesus overcame the consequences of the fall. A few weeks ago, we saw creation in Romans 8 excited that Christ has finally allowed human beings to be the human beings we were created to be. Work can have purpose. Families can be formed in hope, not hopelessness. Separation from God has been overcome. And our separation from each other can finally be overcome. I think this is Paul's point in the passage we heard today. Paul is struggling with this church that he founded. They aren't listening to him and they aren't listening to each other. There were some who had sympathies with one group. Some who had sympathies with another I know that you'll have a hard time imagining it, but it seems that personalities had broken into groups with strong opinions on a variety of issues in this church. 
Um, there were a lot of opinions in this particular church over theological, political, socioeconomic issues. So stretch your minds with me if you can and imagine a church with members from different backgrounds and strong opinions across the political spectrum. And every one of them imagining they were the right one. I have heard that it said, God has a truly strange sense of humor. Why else would he call different people from different places with different gifts and different attitudes and different likes and different dislikes and calls us all to come together and not just put up with each other, that's hard enough, but to actually find community, to be servants to each other, to, as a collected group of individuals, manifest the body of Christ to the world. If we are just a collection of individuals trying to win people over to our perspective, we are missing a powerful message of the gospel. I believe it's truly a tragedy. If I cannot come to a fellow Christian and say, I'm really having a problem. If I can't say there's something I'm concerned about or something has gone terribly wrong, then we have lost one of the greatest strengths of our faith. We are still living life before the resurrection. No community, just shame. The Christian life is hard. It is hard to be like Christ. I said that's the only sermon I have. I don't guess I mentioned that's a really hard sermon. It is hard to be like Christ. This is the place where we can come and draw strength from one another. This is the place that is supposed to be safe. This is the place that through our community with each other, we walk together in this world. This is the body of Christ. And sometimes the things that can bring success in this world, independence, pride, drive for personal success, those things can run counter to what results in success in the Christian life. Dependence on one another, humility, regard for others' needs before yours. It takes courage and strength and maturity to be vulnerable to people you don't like very much. It takes courage to be vulnerable to people who don't agree with you. It takes courage to see the power of the resurrection and community without shame. Jesus was willing to put your life above his. He was willing to die for the chance that you might glimpse that life. If we're going to be like Jesus, we're going to have to put other people before us, and that includes the people who disagree with us. Mutual submission, I always tell couples when I'm counseling them that that is the secret to a healthy marriage. That was certainly something that our couple in songs had figured out. I mean, I honestly think if we didn't have the headings in our Bible, now in Hebrew it's easier, you've got gender, then that works in the language, but in English, if we didn't have the headings in the Bible, I don't know that we would be able to tell who is speaking in the text sometimes. When, when is the woman speaking and when is you can't even tell the difference. They've become such close community, such love, such regard for one another. Neither one of them the boss, both of them regarding the other. Mutual submission is the secret to a healthy relationship. Well, it's also the secret to a healthy church. If every one of us is looking out for every one of us, we won't have contentious business meetings. We won't have fights over worship. We won't have fights over pastors. Imagine that church. Imagine a church where when someone asks, why do you go there, the answer isn't because I like the worshiper, because I like the pastor. Imagine a church where the answer is because we care about each other. That is something I've heard people in this church say. Everything in the world will try to push you into being selfish. It will push you into being partisan for your particular perspective and your side. This is the place where we should be able to come and truly find the politics of Jesus. And what does that look like? We crucify our wills and resurrect Christ in our life each day. It's only then that we can 
do and be what Paul said so beautifully in verse 25 and 26 of 1 Corinthians 12. That if one member suffers, we all suffer. If one member rejoices, we all rejoice. May we remember that as our mission as Christians, there's a challenge for each one of us here. That the love we show our brother and sister, the love we show our neighbor, the love we show our community and manifest here is the love that we show God. The community we have here is the way we experience that community with God. To love God with all we are, to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's what we were created for. Would you pray with me? Dear God, may we remember that we serve you alone, but may we also remember that it's not alone that we serve you. Help us to find that community in this place. Help us to rejoice with those who rejoice. Help us to mourn with those who mourn. Because we remember that you rejoice with those who rejoice, and you mourn with those who mourn. As always, our prayer is to be more like you. Keep us from living like fallen human beings who have no hope. May we truly find the power of the resurrection in our lives. May we truly find life with purpose, love without shame, vulnerability and community that we were created to be. In all things, may we find and manifest you every day. For it's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen.